Hey everyone, before we get into today's episode, I wanna take a second to acknowledge Vouch. With over 4,000 startups insured from napkin sketch ideas to large IPOs, Vouch is the insurer of choice for crypto companies, including L1s, L2s, DAOs, protocols, and a whole lot more. Their exclusive coverages are enhanced for crypto, covering everything from regulatory defense to smart contract vulnerabilities. With Vouch, you're not just insuring your startup, you're investing in peace of mind so you can keep on building. You'll hear more about Vouch later in the show. All right, everyone, I want to introduce you to Bumper, a new DeFi protocol that is here to redefine how you protect your crypto assets. Obviously, market volatility can be a big concern for us crypto holders. Go check out Bumper. It's bumper.fi. Take a step towards smarter crypto asset risk management. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Empire. Today, we're sitting down with Matt Cutler, co-founder, CEO of Block Native. The vision, I think, Matt, for this, in my mind, I want to talk about uh, supply chain of Ethereum from a user's perspective, kind of who are these actors in the supply chain, then once we kind of solve that and figure that out, we can get into MEV, you can start to double click on that and go down rabbit holes like relays. And I know you're very excited about account abstraction, maybe we could use Uniswap as a case study here, private transactions, a lot to talk about. But the place I want to start actually, and I didn't know this until we had dinner at Permissionless, is I think you're one of the only crypto builders who also has an IPO under their belt. And I'd be curious, I forget if it was actually an IPO or just a couple successes in the past. I'd be curious as just a starting point, like when you look at building for the early internet 25 years ago versus building for Ethereum today, what kind of similarities and differences stand out? Sure, so you're dating me now, but I appreciate that. My first startup ever was a internet infrastructure company way back in 1994. It was called NetGenesis. Um, it became uh, really the first ever web analytics business. Um, I like to say it was a nine-year overnight success, a zero to IPO. And at the time that we went public was one of the top 35 IPOs in history at, up to that point, which is crazy to think about. I was an undergrad at MIT at that point. And so it was long before it was fashionable to do internet companies, long before it was fashionable to do startups as an undergrad. So uh, as I like to say, I have um, earned all these gray hairs, bought and paid for. Um, it's really interesting though. Like it's easy to romanticize, wow, it must've been awesome to build on the internet in 94, 95, 96 before it really happened. And, you know, it was pretty lonely. It was pretty weird. People didn't know what it was. You had to start every meeting with these explanations of what the internet is and how it works and what an email is, et cetera. And most people thought it was some crazy backwater. Does that sound familiar about crypto? Right? That, that uh, uh, basically when I started to tune into to the world of Web3, which was 2016, 2017, my first reaction was, oh, I've seen this movie before. It's, it's weird. It's complicated. It's hard to use. The tools are underdeveloped. But if you really understand what's going on, just like if you really understood the internet compared to other types of network architectures, you really understood what's going on in crypto at a technical level, you go, oh, this is clearly superior to the alternative. And on a long enough time frame, we'll succeed and we'll take over because basically there's all these advantages structurally, right? Now, it felt like it took a long time to get from 1994 to 1999 when the internet really broke into the mainstream and took off. And oh, by the way, there are these ups and downs and the Web 1.0 boom and then the crash. And does that sound familiar? Right. So in many ways, I feel like, uh, you know, this is the old 
it's a faux Mark Twain saying, which is history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. Um, in many regards, uh, Web3 has parallels to the early internet, but is also different. You know, if we think about uh, our world today versus 2016, 2017, it's like orders of magnitude larger, orders of magnitude more diverse, orders of magnitude easier to use, but still probably not easy enough. Um, one of the big differences, which I think is underappreciated, is uh, the Clinton administration, which was the, the, the administration that was had the presidency uh, when, in the formative days of the Internet, had a very explicit hands-off regulatory uh, a stance towards the internet. There was people who were talking about doing stuff and that administration basically said, look, there's innovation happening here. All we're going to do is screw it up. Let's just stand back and let it go. And, and it turned out that that worked out pretty well, both for the internet and for US-based companies in, in you know doing work there, right? I don't think we understood that at the time. I think we all just sort of did what we were doing, but uh, we didn't really think about the regulatory environment to any significant degree while we were building stuff. Now, that's that's a bit different in our world than Web3. Um, it's not to say that we don't need regulation, but certainly the regulatory environment is a lot more hostile to this class of innovation. And it, it really bends what, what can and can't be built and, and how people operate and why. And I think that's something that basically has... Uh, slowed us down in terms of, you know, why hasn't crypto taken over the world? It's been around for a long time. It's because it's been fighting an uphill regulatory battle ever since. Hmm. Um, I do think we're seeing the winds of change there, and I do think we're sort of starting to move in the right direction. But those are just a few uh, uh, similarities and differences between building early internet infrastructure and building early Web3 infrastructure. Hmm. So about a year ago, we had the the merge, right? And this transition to proof of stake, right? And this this did a couple of things, right? It formalized PBS, this the proposer builder separation. It kind of formalized the outsourcing of block construction, uh, which which then created this new market of of specialists of of these block builders, right? You had to have relays to the network, and I think if you were actively at this point, you know, a year ago it felt like something like MEV was this like dark forest and this weird esoteric thing, and now it feels pretty normalized. Um, it does if you're building an Ethereum or if you're investing in the ecosystem. However, when you talk to a lot of folks, maybe just for the everyday user kind of swapping on Uniswap, this is still not really uh, a very understood supply chain. So I think a good starting place for this conversation would just be, can you walk me through the supply chain of a transaction on Ethereum today? Sure. So uh, the merge was obviously the most significant upgrade to the Ethereum network since its Genesis block. And and while it, it, it brought in the transition from proof of work to proof of stake, it also brought in a whole bunch of other changes, which uh, in many ways perhaps are as fundamental, but are, don't lead, are more complicated and don't have quite the same headlines. So um, it's sort of helpful to go back a little bit. So what happened under proof of work? You had miners who were basically solving arbitrary math problems. You basically pour in CPU, which really requires power, right? To solve these complicated math problems, it's a big global competition. One computer uh, solves it. They get the right to, uh, to, to win the block and to write the block to the chain. They determine which transactions go in and what order. And then there's a new contest, right? Well, what was not really well understood uh, by the community at that time was that though there were thousands of computers that made up Ethereum, there were basically clustered in what were known as mining pools. Because if you basically stood up a computer, it was expensive and put it under your desk, which was expensive, and you ran it for a year, probably you'd win no blocks. So why would anyone do this? But by basically pooling your compute resource with others, you could share the reward. So it was economically rational for folks to, to pool their resources together. Um, 
But what wasn't understood was there was only about four or five mining pools that, that comprised the vast majority of the network. And those entities were the ones who determined what went into a block, meaning which transactions are included, which transactions are excluded, and what is the sequencing or ordering of that, right? And, and that's not great from a decentralization perspective. And, and basically, there was no um, transparency with those parties. Uh, a group called Flashbots um, emerged as sort of a research collective to start to basically start to, to analyze, was there you know, evidence of manipulation happening here where, where the, um, these mining pool operators basically doing things which seem to favor certain parties or not. And that seemed to be happening because it turns out that in ordered transaction systems, which are all transaction systems, the uh, inclusion, exclusion, and sequencing or ordering of transactions, there's value to be extracted. This is known as MEV. At that point, it was known as minor extractable value. And it turns out there's a lot of money to be made here. So there's actually massive economic incentive for these mining pool operators to get smart about this, to develop, you know, develop code that did this and basically cut side deals with large trading operations in order to give them, you know, specific ordering and inclusion uh, so that they could capture value and then they would pay the, the, the miner off to do so. So enter proof of stake, the merge. What happens at the merge? We go from proof of work to proof of stake consensus. So we're not solving complicated math problems with power and CPU. Instead, you stake ETH and you um, basically get randomly selected to be the tip of the chain. And if you do your job, you get a reward in the form of yield. Well, just like we had mining pools before, now pretty rapidly uh, became the emergence of staking pools. Because again, you operate one staking node, there's hundreds of thousands of them out there. What's the likelihood that you're going to get picked very low? And so what you want to do is basically band in with others and you want to basically pool the reward so you get a more even return. Totally makes sense. But there started to be some very large mining pools that were aggregating a lot of ETH. They, they had a lot of resources. And the realization was, ooh, these large staking pools could get really good at MEV. Um, they could build more valuable blocks than anybody else, and uh, they would then have higher yield. So if I was someone who had 32 ETH and I wanted to put my ETH somewhere, I would just, just like buying a bond, right? I would look to see where I got the highest yield and I'd put my stake there, right? Well, basically, if staking pool A offers higher yield than everyone else, then everyone's going to put their money in staking pool A. And staking pool A is going to have more resources to get better at, at this and generate higher yield. And this would create effectively an irreversible centralization of stake at the very heart of the network. And this was viewed as sort of an existential threat to the network. And the realization was made by the uh, researchers at the Ethereum Foundation that, that they couldn't introduce the merge um, with this as, as a fact of life. Um, there was a whole field of research known as PBS, Proposer Builder Separation, whereby, you know, just breaking that down, you break apart the act of proposing a block to the network from the act of building the block, right? You separate proposer and builder. And while there's been a lot of research into doing that in protocol, there's a lot of extra complexity with that. And in order to accelerate the arrival of the merge, the Ethereum Foundation wind up using a out-of-protocol sidecar known as MEV Boost, which, by the way, is sort of architected and, and coded by the team at Flashbot. So there's Flashbots again. And what this does is it basically creates a third-party marketplace for independent block builders to basically do the work of, 
of ordering, of grabbing transactions, inclusion, exclusion, and ordering, and um, providing that to the proposer to send to the network. So any proposer on the network can either build their own block or they can outsource to this third-party network, right? Um, we as Block Native are integral players in that and evolving with that space. And the question is, why would anyone do this? Why would a staker outsource to the block building network? And the reason is building valuable blocks is actually quite difficult. It's quite computationally intensive. It's um, uh, network intensive, it's storage intensive. And to do it well, you actually need a whole bunch of specialized relationships. And so these third parties like us build blocks that are on average about five times as valuable as a locally sourced block. So it turns out there's this really significant economic incentive for any staking operator to outsource to this third party because they, they get higher yield. And if they don't, then they're going to have lower yield than everybody else and they're going to lose all their stake. Right. Um, and so uh, this. So, by the way, today on Ethereum, 93 to 95 percent of all blocks are outsourced. And so it's the prominent way that blocks get constructed. And the way that it goes and just now we're getting into the core of your question, but it, it, it helps to understand the context, understand why it works. This way is a user submits a transaction to the public mempool. Use your MetaMask wallet, use your Ledger wallet, you have default configuration, you submit, it goes into the, the public mempool. Um, your transaction is effectively competing with every other transaction to be included in the next block. Uh, you know, on average, the each block contains, you know, between 150 and 250 transactions. So you need to be at the top of that. Like, how do you get at the top? Well, it's gas price. So basically, transactions are sorted by gas price. You have a base fee, which gets burned. You have this uh, uh, priority fee or tip, which goes to the miner or the builder now. Um, and basically, if you price your transaction appropriately, you can get included, right? And then what builders do, there are these third-party operators called builders that basically aggregate all these transactions in the public mempool and try to build, you know, fill up the block because there's only so much gas space and, um, you know, build a valuable block except there's this other group of actors called searchers. What searchers are doing is they're looking for transactions in the public mempool that they can basically bundle transactions with to extract value. So this includes things like backrunning or frontrunning or sandwiching. What these searchers do is they create a bundle. They say, if you give me this, so they actually, it's, it's not really well understood. They grab the transaction out of the public mempool they insert their transactions in front, behind, or on top of, and then they submit that bundle to a builder and they say, hey, builder, if you include these transactions in this sequence and it successfully lands on chain, here's what I'll pay you, right? Here's what I'll, I'll, I'll give you for doing so. And so how much would you bid for the opportunity to get a $100,000 profit? Would you bid 10 bucks? Of course you would. What's nice but interesting is it's a competitive marketplace. We have lots of searchers who all, who all see the same thing. Only one of them is going to win. So you bid 10, I bid 20, she bids 50, he bids 100, you bid 1,000. And before you know it, the bidding goes up quite a bit where most of the value of that 100 grand gets sent to the builder. Okay. Now, the builders also compete with each other because they're trying to bid for the right to win the block at the at the proposer level, right? So that they have to be the most valuable block. So just like there's competition among searchers, there's now competition among builders. And they do the same thing. They say, hey, validator, if you take my block, here's what I'll give you as a reward, right? And so as you might imagine, that gets bid up as well. And so most of the value of this MEV that as a result of this Oracle update 
starts at the searchers who, ca- who, who recognize it, flows mm-hmm. through the builders to the validators, right? And so this is where we get what we call juicy blocks, blocks that are literally worth millions of dollars, a single block, because they contain so much value and because everybody's competing with each other. Final piece of all of this, in the middle between the builders and the um, proposers are these entities called relays. We're one of the few relay operators on the market. And what they do is they basically protect the builders and the proposers from each other because it's a trustless and permissionless system. And that basically builders could do things like make phony bids that would then screw over the the proposers and proposers could do things like steal MEV from builders and screw them over. And so basically uh, relays are these critical trusted intermediaries that, that ensure the orderly operation of the network so that builders and proposers can work together without having to trust each other. And sadly, propose the, the relays for, for really helping operate the network get nothing. There's no economic incentives at the relay layer. I, for one, we have Block Native have been very vocal about that this isn't a great Mm -hmm. situation because it turns out there's only seven relay operators on the market and there's nobody new really coming in that has any real share because why would anyone go into something that has 100% risk and 0% reward as a relay operator? So there's a long answer to short question, but that's sort of the history of how we got here and how things work today. And and oh, by the way, of course, all this stuff is is being worked on and may work differently tomorrow. Fair? Uh, very very good answer there, Matt. Um, couldn't be a conversation with with uh, with Matt Culler without talking about the economic incentives of of relays. But before we do that, so four actors here, right? We've got the builders are the folks who kind of construct the potential blocks. The relays are kind of these tr- trusted actors which receive the blocks from the builders and kind of sit in the middle and like validate them and make sure that they're good. They kind of sit in the middle between the builders and the validators and they pass the they pass the blocks over to the validators to be included on chain. And the searchers are hedge funds who are oftentimes funds who are, or, or just smart, smart individuals who are trying to basically extract value from this whole system who, so searchers, builders, relays, and validators, who has the leverage in this supply chain? How would you rank kind of the leverage of this system? So the economics are, have, have been pretty clear. So now we're more than a year post-merge. By the way, we just published a big blog post about what we've learned over the course of the past year. And one of the things we've said is basically the value accrues at the searcher level, the trader class, trader searchers for the same thing, and at the validator class, right? And there's not great economics in the middle. And, And part of the reason is we, Block Native, have been a credibly neutral builder. Like we're we're not a trading operation. We're just trying to build valuable blocks. And What's uh, become a fact of life is vertically integrated searcher builders. So the searcher says, there's all this profit in this trade. I could share it with a builder or I could just be a builder myself, right? And so the, the, what the searchers do is they operate their own builders. They don't socialize their trade. So they have ex- what's called exclusive order flow. They have trades nobody else has, right? And they capture value at the trade level as opposed to at the builder level. So it kind of bleeds out the interesting economics for the most part at, at the builder level, right? Um, and you can see all this. There's public dashboards on all of these things, which is pretty great. But you can see... Um, uh, builder profitability on sites like RelayScan. And, and what you'll find is most of the profit goes to integrated searcher builders. And that's just sort of how it goes. I can talk a little bit about that. Um, there's 
some money, but not very much money at the builder level. There is no money, actually negative money at the relay level. And then most of the value actually goes to the validators. So, so fundamentally, there's been literally hundreds of millions of dollars, maybe even be billions of dollars of value that this setup has basically flowed to validators. So validators are, are the big winners in all of this and the very clear, you know, sort of uh, most advantage economic actors because they have final say. Now, there is a, a fifth actor, which is easy to overlook and easy to ignore in the supply chain, which is users, right? That mm. none of this happens without regular people doing transactions on the network, which is the root cause of MEV or the source of it all. The user doesn't do a transaction, there's no MEV. And users for in many ways have been an afterthought in this space. Um, users in many ways uh, suffer a less favorable settlement as a result of, of these sorts of things. And, and we don't think that's great. And, and we think this is something that needs to be talked about and addressed because if users are second-class citizens on, on any of these networks, then it's unlikely that they're going to be the, the network will be the foundation of the next economy. So anyways, uh, searchers are doing pretty well. Uh, uh, validators are doing very well tough on everybody else in the current the current set of affairs. Yeah. Well, maybe I would push back on the user thing for a second or or just bring up this question that I think is important, um, which is who are you trying to optimize for? Are you trying to optimize because uh, are you trying to optimize for the user or are you trying to optimize for kind of the health of the network, the infrastructure in a sense? And I'd be I'd be curious to throw that at you because MEV I feel like has ebbed and flowed from this at some points in times uh, people have almost thought of it as this ex existential threat to the decentralization of Ethereum. At other points in time, you hear it talked about as like, look, any any system with ordered transactions is going to have MEV, crypto or non-crypto, right? Um, so it's just part of the part of this network and part part of the market. I'd be very curious how you think about like, who are we trying to optimize for, and um, is MEV this threat to the decentralization of Ethereum? Um, it's it's interesting. I would say yes. So so first off. MEV is absolutely a fact of life for any transaction system, right? There's just, once you have ordering, you have some actor who can control that ordering and extract value. What are what are examples of, not to get too off topic, but like MEV in 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 my daily life out off chain? So the, the classic example, which I'm pretty sure I was the one who proposed is SEO, right? Type in a search to Google. Everybody knows that being at the top of the search results is way better than being on the fifth page. So there's this whole thing you do to optimize your search engine ranking because the ordering matters, right? And this used to be a dark art that like only certain people knew about. And then gradually this started to be talked about and then tools started to be built. And now there's a whole industry. It used to be a cottage industry. Now it's a big industry associated with SEO, but there's one actor in the center, Google, who benefits from, from all of that, right? So classic example of SEO, I mean, of, uh, of MEV. Um, Airline tickets, concert tickets, everybody understands, right? Like the sooner you buy or when you buy and what you pay. And basically that Ticketmaster captures MEV and the airlines capture MEV around, you know, seat assignments and availability and pricing, right? Classic. It's true of stock trading. It's true of mortgages. It's true of, um, you know, any credit card system as well. The difference on public blockchain networks like Ethereum is it's open and programmable. It is observable, which it's not on any of those systems. It all happens behind closed doors. We never really know about it or, or hear about it. And so this seems like this brand new thing that suddenly came into the spotlight, not new at all, just new transparency and observability of it. Now, what is the net effect? The net effect is MEV is economically measured in billions of dollars. 
And if you don't deal with it in an organized, orderly, transparent, permissionless fashion, then it absolutely pollutes and corrupts and centralizes the network, right? It's just too valuable, right? And so you'll hear about chains that say, oh, we have no MEV, right? The only way to have no MEV is to have no liquidity, no flow. As soon as you have flow, MEV results. You can say, oh, well, we have rules where, you know, it can't be, you know, manipulated or, or exploited. And you go, well, eventually there's the economic incentives get so large that like it's worth it to break the rules. And so uh, MEV is a fact of life, doesn't matter. And, and again, the idea that there are some magical way to do fair ordering or some magical way to do, um, to, to sort of engineer it away, I'm pretty skeptical of, and I think many in the, the space are skeptical right. of. It does exert this sort of um, gravity on the network where the network has to deal with it. And as a result, you can look at the, how the network works like PBS, you can look at other things coming and say, you're kind of catering to the MEV class. You're kind of favoring that class. Mm-hmm. And the answer is, look, if we don't deal with this, if we don't, if we don't make this organized, then it, it's going to crop up, but in these backroom, you know, kind of ways, and that's going to be really negative for the network. So it's a difficult position for, for any chain to be in with liquidity. Um, certainly the Ethereum Foundation has, has spent a lot of energy here and will continue to as the roadmap unfolds. But like it or not, it's a fact of life and I think everybody's going to need to deal with it. Um, the final thing I'll say is I don't think it's an end user problem to deal with. Like, imagine, I always say, imagine going to the grocery store and being like, dude, you paid with your, your Visa card on Wednesday and you had bananas? Like everybody knows you don't do that. You get screwed. Like, wait, what? Like, Oh, well, you got to know the time of day, day of week, what's in your shopping cart, where you are geographically, and which credit cards in order to get favorable settlement because it's, it's changing all the time. Like end users are just want to like buy their groceries and get out. They don't want to feel like they're getting screwed. I d- that does remind my dad when he made his first ever transaction on Uniswap. He, um, on Uniswap, he, I think it was like a 2 p.m. on a Tuesday. I was like, he's like, yeah, but gas was crazy. I was like, well, yeah, you got to make that trade on like a Saturday. He's like, well, how would I know that? <laughs> and why would I know that? And by the way, if you know, like, again, it's this, if you're in the space, it's like, oh, well, all we need is smarter users. You're like, mm, that's not, that's not the way to the future, right? What yeah, we need yeah, is smarter yeah. infrastructure in order to uh, insulate and, and abstract this all away from users, which good news is we're making a lot of progress on. Um, MEV is not quite the, uh, the dark art that it once was. It's kind of a mainstream topic, but it's something that I think everybody in the category needs to, to be aware of and to be proactive about. Yeah. Who are, uh, last question on the actors, and then we'll move into, I think, uh, maybe the economic incentives of relays, but who are, who are the actors? Like who are the biggest searchers? Who are the biggest builders? Who are these, are these names that are the validators, you know, the the people and the companies behind the validators and the searchers and stuff and the builders, would would these be names that empire listeners would be familiar with? Um, Or are they kind of these like really under the radar folks? Um, they're, they're not, they're, they're generally not big names. Again, the good news about this is there's public dashboards where you can see a lot of this stuff happening. So relay scan, um, mevboost.pix, mevboost.org, um, rated network. Uh, there's, right. there's tons of stuff out there where you can see this stuff. There are actors like block native and blocks route and flashbots that maybe you're familiar with. They're, uh, actors like Beaver Builds and Builder Zero X sixty nine and Titan Builder and you know yeah. um, there are entities which like 
hey, they operate as this as a builder, but it's really this um, hedge fund behind the scenes, right? And so none of this stuff is super secret, um, but it's not super explicit either. And then there are like specialized actors like Ultrasound Relay or Agnostic, right? Ultrasound Relay, the head of that is a guy named Justin Drake, who's one of the top Ethereum researchers uh, overall. Agnostic is a project from Gnosis. So it's it's not, I wouldn't say these are household names. They're not completely opaque either. Um, yeah. Searchers themselves are often quite opaque, right? That they're just addresses online. And they can range from individual people um, who it used to be that way. Today, it's so competitive. There's relatively few you know, independent or individual searchers, they tend to form teams um, or they tend to turn into like funds where they actually have a fair amount of capital. They have a formal structure and there's a number of these large funds that are active in the space. In particular, one of the big areas to big ways to grab value here is what's known as uh, Sextex arbitrage. So arbitraging between centralized exchanges and decentralized exchanges, but to do so requires actually a fair amount of capital and taking a fair amount of risk. Right. And so that's beyond, like, even if you understand how it works, it's beyond the means of, you know, most individuals. Um, you really do need a, a pretty substantial amount of resources to do that effectively, but there's a lot of money to be made at it. And that's why the bigger folks do so. Yeah. By the way, folks want to listen to an interview with a searcher. Mike had a really good episode on bell curve with a uh, Dean Eigenman and I think uh, I think a niche from I think he's a paradigm or maybe expert I forget where he's at but anyways very very good episode with the searcher uh, yep. two searchers so um, maybe we could double click on the this thing in the middle between the the builders and the validators so the relay sit here and block native runs a relay um, you're also a block builder um, can you maybe just double click on relays like why do they really exist how many relays are they what does the market size for like relays look like? And even just like, I'd be very curious about the, the business model. You, you are running a business. Uh, what, what is the, why do you do this? Uh, what, why are you doing this? So there's a lot, there's a lot there. Maybe just double click on relays for us here. I ask myself this question. Why are you doing what you're doing here, Matt? Yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, so again, relays are these critical trusted intermediaries that, that, um, uh, you know, the, there's a whole bunch of bad things that can happen between builders and proposers if one of them is a malicious actor, right? So, for example, the builder says, I have a block that's worth $100 million. Validator says, oh, awesome, I'll take $100 million. And the builder says, just joking, I don't really have $100 million. And because you have to propose the block within 12 seconds, right, you only have 12 seconds for the slot. In reality, it's more like four seconds, right? You, you accept that winning bid. It's not a valid bid. You wind up with a missed slot and you get zero from the network, right? And the reason why you would do this is a builder wants to prevent somebody else from putting a block on because they're trying to prevent some other um, uh, you know, transactions from landing on chain, right? This would be very trivial to do. And so what a relay does is a relay basically validates uh, that the builder's bid is valid, is, is there, right? There are multiple ways to do this. One is to actually inspect the block and inspect the bid and say, yep, everything's good with the block and everything's good with the bid. There's a, another way, which is called optimistic relaying, which is pioneered by the ultrasound team, where they don't do that. Instead, the builders are bonded, meaning the builders like put up some ETH, like say they put up, I think it's 100 ETH is the max you can do. And then you can bid up to that amount and uh, if you don't deliver a valid block, then basically the, the, the validator gets paid out of the escrow, right? Um, out of the bond. Um, 
there's advantages to that for latency because a lot of this winds up being a latency game, um, but there are disadvantages to that approach as well. Um, critically, at the relay layer, you can do things like sensor transactions. You can basically you know, decide that there's certain sorts of transactions you're not going to transmit through, which in the US, the Department of Treasury has what's known as OFAC SDN. They've put Tornado Cash smart contracts on there. And so entities with US-based persons, like Block Native, generally are legally advised not to touch those transactions because you might be liable for facilitating a, a banned transaction. So it does introduce some fragility to the network, and, and that's something people care about. Conversely, the other thing is also true, where basically a, a builder builds a valuable block. A proposer receives the block and says, oh, there's a ton of value in here. I'm just going to change some of these addresses. So instead of you getting paid, I get paid. Right, I steal the MEB, and you go, wow, you know that'd be terrible. You'll get slashed. Like I get slashed, thirty-two ETH, right? But I can make hundreds of millions of dollars or more, right? And so, basically, how it works is the relays don't share the full block, the block body containing the transactions to the validator, to the to the proposer. They just share the header. Right, so they basically share the bids. It's a it's a it's a, a full block auction bid. The um, validator reviews the bids, selects the highest bid, signs the bid, okay? And it basically binds them, you know, at a cryptographic layer that they have to propose that block to the network. And what used to happen was that the relay would then release the block body to the proposer and the proposer would send it to the network. And there was actually a big attack and exploit. There was a, a, a bug in all of that that resulted in a pretty big like $20 million loss. And so today what happens is as soon as the proposer signs the header, the relay releases the block body to the entire network and then releases it back to the proposer. So basically gets it out to the network and sort of it, it prevents some um, potential attack vectors on mm. um, malicious proposers. So the relays are this really critical, you know, for 95% of the network, 95% of the blocks, they act as these intermediaries to make sure everything is orderly and, and smooth and proficient, right? Um, for doing so, zero economics. They get paid nothing. Okay. And in fact, there's negative economics because if a relay doesn't do its job, it's slow, it, it screws up, it gets rebooted, and the validator misses a slot because the relay didn't do all the network handshakes, that there's precedent for these large staking pools for demanding a refund. Like it's a free service, and you say, oh, now you owe me, right? And uh, if you don't uh, uh, make me whole, then I'm going to disconnect from your relay and you won't have access to us, right? And so literally the job of relaying is, is negative margin, not positive margin. There are relays that have funding in other ways. There are public goods relays where they basically say, hey, donate in. There are some relays that actually charge builders to get access to them. And so you know, there's starting to be some, some movement there. We and me have been very vocal advocates for they should be economically incented in protocol. So you do your job and you get paid because you're, you're providing a valuable service, particularly to validators. Um, and doing so would increase participation and increase diversity at the relay layer. Because it turns out that there's not a lot of players here. There's, I think, 10 or 11 relays on the network totally, but they're only operated by seven um, entities. Um, we're, one of, we're one of those seven. We at Block Native are right now about... 10% of the network. Um, uh, and, and we think there should be more. We think it's it's better to have more people participating. It's better to have a diversity of code bases and things like that. Now, 
why do we do this? We thought it was necessary to, to compete in this market space. We thought it was good for the support of the network. And we thought that some of these issues would be addressed over time. And, and the truth is that uh, the economics really haven't been. There's been a lot of discussion about it, but but there hasn't been sort of a, a real material change here. And, you know, like anything else, we evaluate our strategies. So um, we will be making changes in these areas because we're a venture-backed startup. We need to return, you know, uh, a generator return for our shareholders. And relays, what we thought would be a really interesting and important thing, are, are really not that economically interesting to an actor like us. By the way, they're expensive to operate. They're global, 24 by 7, real time, right? right? You've got an but economic incentive for, for – there's there's no economic incentive for operating a relay. There is a cost. You've got neg- negative em- uh, economics. I'm, I'm sure uh, – the VCs backing Block Native or not don't don't love that model. <laughs> no, no, and you can't make it up on volume when there's there's no positive economics. And so, you know, I think we will see and um, changes in the relay setup, right? In terms of who's participating and who's not. I think the space mm-hmm. um, isn't as dynamic as we'd like it to be. Um, and you know, we have to look out for for our own. And, and there's very real opportunity costs. I was talking to one of the other relay operators, and uh, the team said there'd be a higher ROI on doing literally anything else besides this. So, you know, mm. I raise these issues because it's not great, right? Like just if people, you know, people really, one of the analogies I do is when you eat your food, do you think about where your food came from? And like, you're putting it in your body. Like when you do transactions on the, on, on a chain, do you think about like what the supply chain, what the sourcing is? How does that look? Like you should be aware of where your food comes from. You should be aware of how blocks get made. And and as you get into it, sometimes you'll find like, mm, it's not quite as clean as I would like it to be or quite as decentralized as I'd like it to be. So, you know, we try to be uh, uh, net positive actors and positive contributors to the ecosystem. But, you know, there's only, there's only so far you can go. That's for sure. Yeah. So if I'm reading between the lines here, you believe that operating a relay relay is really net positive for for ETH, right? You're you're 10% of the network right now. You think it's a really good thing to run. However, the economic incentives just don't make sense. And you're starting to think like, look, even if it's really good for the network, maybe this isn't the business we should be in. Um, I would say yes, but it's less starting to think and more like we've reached some conclusions and we'll be taking yeah. some actions here, right? Like we've been doing this for more than a year. Um, it's been super interesting. We're, we're excited to be part of all of this stuff, but you know, uh, attaboys, high fives and nice tweets don't pay salaries. So, <laughs> you know, we got to find ways to, to make sure that happens. Yeah. So then, okay. So I'm just going to pretend like you guys are getting out of the relay market. That leaves what just one code base, which is flashbots, right? So then is, or no. Well, so it's a good question. So there is a open source code base from the called the Flashbots Relay. We operate a separate open source code base called Dreamboat, our own, that has some significant architectural differences between them. That introduces some code base diversity. Um, it's unclear if every other relay is running the the default Flashbots or they've made modifications to it. But they're, as far as I know, not open source. So so there's not great observability in there. And so, yeah, that that is something that I think we we have tried to raise awareness of is we spend a lot of time and energy around um, di- code diversity at the consensus layer. Um, but 
you know, why shouldn't we also have similar levels of diversity in other layers of the stack? And is that good or bad or why? I actually debated this very point with Hasu on uh, uh, an episode of um, the Bell Curve podcast, where, you know, is code based diversity good or bad at the relay layer? And uh, we're very much of the camp of it's if it's good at the consensus layer, it should also be good at the relay layer. So hmm. and I think Hasu would probably argue that. What would Hasu say to this? Hasu would probably say that there's if there's more eyes, it's it's better to have more eyes on one code base than, you know, spread a bunch of code bases out. I, I, I Again, the same argument can be made for consensus layer clients, right? right, right, right. Yeah. So I, I understand that POV, but, you know, my POV, my worldview is to be intellectually consistent, either code diversity is a good thing or a bad thing, right? The marketplace right. can decide which ones they, they trust in. Um, and so it, regardless, I think the ship has sort of already sailed. And so, you know, it's just things are going to unfold moving forward. We, we are advocates of positive change here because we think it affects the entire network and we think it affects anybody moving forward. So um, we'd love to see, you know, in protocol economics introduced for the relayer level. I think part of the pushback has been that's a significant change and we need to really be careful and do research here. So, you know, uh, I, I certainly understand that POV as well, but, you know, at the end of the day, like time keeps ticking by. So there you go. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the final thing about all of this is like observability really matters. And I think one of the big issues that we had with proof of work was there was really poor observability into the block construction process. There was really high degrees of centralization. Um, one of the areas that we at Block Native are invested in and will continue to invest in is ensuring sort of great observability for all members of the network and, and at the relayer layer level, this is important as well. So anyways, I think that's something that will continue to unfold. Yeah. One last thing on the relay and just, I'd be curious to get your, so in, in, uh, in like a normal supply chain in a supply, like Mike actually used to be a supply chain consultant. So he's, uh, I've, I've learned too much about the supply chain from him. If there's ever a time in a supply chain when someone's not making the money they think they should make, it's usually because they're fungible. They're, they're completely fungible. And be, so that's one thing. The other reason is because, uh, if somebody start charges too much, you can circumvent them. So yeah. Is that the same case with relays here? Is that either A, they're fungible, or B, if they started charging, you could just circumvent them? Is that the conclusion you came to? Well, so let's just say this is a complicated debate. I, I think yeah. one of the issues is uh, uh, that you could create a coalition of relays who agree to do something, but it, the, it's an unstable coalition, right? Um, there are ways to sort of uh, circumvent that. So one of the things I, I was a big proponent of is what I would call mislot insurance, right? Like imagine a scheme where validators pay some fee, a small fee on relayed blocks, and in return, they get mislot insurance, right? And so as a result, if you know they, they have some coverage, uh, if a validator would choose to use a relay that doesn't participate in that, that doesn't charge the fee, then they realistically can't expect mislot insurance, right? So there's a hard cost and a hard benefit, right? To sort of balance mm -hmm. some of that out. Um, the reality is the relays are, are to a certain degree fungible, meaning we have similar blocks and we have similar um, uh, sort of similar things flowing through them. But from the point of view of the network, we're expected to operate as utility. Um, for instance, if a relay has a block that they have won. So, hey, they're the winner. But for whatever reason, they're unable to release the block. If we as Block Native have the same block, we should release it because it's better for the network and better for the validator, even if that other relay hasn't done its mm. job, right? Mm. So you say, well, 
you know, for the liveliness, the liveness and the resiliency of the network, that makes total sense. But are we competing with each other as relays or are we cooperating with each other to keep the network in an orderly fashion? And the reality is, is relaying is much more cooperative and much more collaborative than it is competitive, right? And so what, what people really want is an orderly relay network that, that does its job reliably. And, and that's a utility model. And, and that's sort of how we should be expected to operate, right? And so again, like you, like a utility model, you flip on your light switch, you expect the lights to go on, right? You don't want to really hear, oh, well, the oil came out of the ground in Bahrain, and then the, the company that operates the shipping you know, container got hung up at customs, so go call them. And you're like, Dude, I just want the light. You're like, oh, well, the supply chain's complicated, and so, hey, we told you, now you got to go deal with the shipping company. Like, no one wants to do that, right? And so, anyways, there are... It's it's not a simple issue, right? And and this is why this the the status quo has been maintained. Um, I dislike the idea that we made a bunch of changes at the merge that was some sort of immaculate conception, and that these uh, the current state of affairs should be preserved ad infinitum. Like I've been an advocate for, let's make some upgrades based on what we know. But there you go. All right, everyone, wanted to talk about Vouch again, our favorite insurance provider for crypto companies. If you are building in crypto, you have probably come to realize that contracts need insurance, partners demand insurance. And as a founder myself, trust me when I say you owe it to not only yourself, but your investors and your clients and your customers. And I'm not just talking about any insurance. Their exclusive coverages are tailored specifically for crypto companies that can address issues like protections for regulatory defense, recognizing DAOs as insured, addressing smart contract vulnerabilities, and even covering the loss of digital assets. They're in it with you, whether you're working on L1s, L2s, DAOs, MPC wallet providers, building a protocol, and a lot more. So whether you're just scribbling your next big idea on a napkin or gearing up for a big fundraise or maybe thinking about that IPO or an acquisition, don't leave things to chance. Get insured today with 5% off Vouch's exclusive coverage for Empire listeners using code Empire. Think about it this way. With Vouch, you're not just insuring your startup, you are investing in peace of mind. All right, everyone, I want to introduce you to Bumper, a new DeFi protocol that is here to redefine how you protect your crypto assets. Obviously, market volatility can be a big concern for us crypto holders. Bumper alleviates this by allowing you, the user, to lock your tokens into the protocol and set a price. No matter how much the market fluctuates, your investment in your token won't fall below the predetermined value. When you compare this to traditional options platforms, Bumper offers a non-custodial and actually cheaper on average alternative that protects the value of your crypto from market price drops. If you are looking to earn a yield on your crypto, Bumper has you covered. By depositing USDC into the Bumper protocol, you can earn a return, which is derived from the premiums paid by protection buyers. Early adopters and Empire listeners have a chance to claim a part of the $250,000 early adopter bump rewards. Go check out Bumper. It's bumper.fi. Take a step towards smarter crypto asset risk management. Hmm. I have one more MEV question that I forgot to ask. So right now we ha kind of have these latency wars in MEV, it feels like. And uh, yep. sorry, I had to take a drink of this. Um, if we eventually tra transition, I, I was reading about Citadel earlier today. Citadel did something and SEC slapped them with a $7 million fine or something like that. So I was thinking about a Citadel leading up to this episode and there's payment for order flow and Robinhood and all that kind of stuff. And if we transition... 
would we ever transition to more of a kind of payment for order flow process for MEV? And are there still, if that happened, like, how does that impact how searchers think about like when they submit their bids in this kind of like order flow auction, right? And maybe those are two totally separate Separate so questions here. We just jammed together a bunch of ideas. But, yeah. but I would say, one, that's not a hypothetical. That's sort of what's happening, right? Okay. So, and so the, the reason here is the, the economic incentives are such that if a transaction hits the public mempool and every searcher has access to it, it's a uh, open competition to capture the result where mm, most yeah. of the profit actually goes out of the searcher's hands and to the validator, as we've already talked about. But if I can have proprietary order flow, exclusive orders that only I can see and nobody else can see, I can do that because, you know what, I'm a trading operation. These are my own trades. So I'm not going to socialize them to others. I'm going to have my own trades. Uh, it's into the private transact, private mempool, private conversation that I want to have. Okay. Exactly. Okay. Or yeah. I can create a relationship with, let's say, a wallet, right? And, and I can do that, which, by the way, there's a bunch of those that exist as well. Um, then... I, as a searcher, can see transactions that nobody else can see, which means I can build bundles that are competitive. It means I can build blocks that are more valuable. And it means I can um, uh, uh, retain more of the upside than rather than sharing it with the validators, right? So hocus pocus, there's a lot of economic incentive to do this sort of stuff, right? Hmm. Now, you mentioned this term OFA or order flow auction. These are emerging now as well. And, and the idea here is, well, if I'm a source of order flow, like maybe a wallet, right? I could tie up with the searcher. Maybe that's not the best thing optically, but you know, I could have sort of my own um, you know, private relationship or maybe even as a wallet, I have my own searching. It's captive to me, right? But but that's probably inefficient because it turns out MEV is a big and complicated topic and like you need many actors who are on top of each other. So what I'm going to do instead is auction off my order flow to a set of searchers, right? So again, it's before it hits the public mempool. It goes to a set of searchers. Maybe it's a smaller set, right? And then, you know, there's some, some private market-like act, you know, entities or uh, uh, tendencies to that. Um, as we look at you know, things like 4337, account abstraction and smart contract wallets, this sort of stuff gets even more pronounced and... and, and um, I would say institutionalized or, or uh, enshrined in the form of bundlers, whose job it is is to do that with 4337 intents. So the supply chain is really turning into a value network. That's certainly what the, the guys at Frontier Tech would, would argue with more actors, more variability, more players, more configurations, um, and in many ways, more opaque, right? And this is why we, we feel like this notion of observability continues to be a really big one is... Um, Users need to know why things happen, not just what happened. So on-chain data is what happened, but it's it's in this pre-chain mempool, et cetera, layer that, that the whys occur, like why does settlement happen? And if folks don't have great observability, if they can't see why things happen, then they should assume they're, they're being screwed. They should assume that there's bad actors and they should be leery of you know, putting liquidity into those systems because they don't really know what's happening, right? So we think observability is going to be very much huh. a, a necessary condition moving forward. I, I might take the other side of that argument, Matt, actually. I would, um, so let, actually, let's go deeper into private transactions and mempools and things like this. So so just to make sure I understand it correctly, because I'm venturing out of my territory here. Right now, if I make a transaction on anything from Rainbow to Uniswap Wallet to MetaMask or 
whatever it may be, that all flows into one place. But what, what, what you're saying and what it sounds like is already happening is there are these private transaction, private, private pools that could be created, right? Where maybe something from Uniswap's wallet, instead of going into the public mempool, it goes into a private, uh, private maybe Uniswap only mempool. Do I, is that correct? Do I have that right? Um, yes. So, so just to be a kind little bit clear, your, your wallet uh, transmits uh, your transactions to the network over what's known as a, as an RPC endpoint, remote procedure call endpoint. Right. Um, you know, MetaMask. By default, the RPC endpoint is Infura, which is also a consensus. You know, consensus operates yeah. both of them. And by default, Infura transmits your transaction to the public mempool. So it's out there for everybody to see. Um, many wallets allow you to change your RPC endpoint, um, including MetaMask and others, where you could pick a different one to send it to. There has been the rise of what are known as private mempools. So a public mempool transaction goes from your wallet to the public mempool and the builder then grabs it out of the public mempool, right? But so can searchers. And so a private uh, a mempool is really a direct communication to a builder or set of builders. So instead of going to the public mempool first and getting pulled down by the builder and searchers, you say, I'm just going to give it straight to the builder. Okay. Um, in fact, pretty much every builder, including Block Native, has a private RPC endpoint where you can share it with just us. Hmm. You can share it with just uh, Beaver or just Builder 0x69. Um, the problem there is you then only get access to a portion of the block space. So let's say you give it to a builder that has 10% share. That means they have it alone, but they're only winning one every 10 blocks. So you're going to wait 10 times as long for that transaction to get unchained. Right. So there's a trade off here. The good news is no one can see it. The bad news is it takes longer. Right. There mm. are um, MEV protection services out there right now. Sort of the big two that there are others are what are called MEV Share, which is a Flashbots offering and MEV Blocker, which is by the CowSwap team. Um, and these are are various forms of uh, uh, MEV recirculation. So you put a transaction into MEV share or into MEV blocker. And again, they have RPC endpoints. And basically they then share it with a captive set of searchers. And if they find value, they recirculate value back to you, right? Um, MEV blocker in particular has become fairly popular, but it's mainly used for protection. Like, like they, they're so far, at least the public dashboards about MEV blocker don't, you know, the, the amount of MEV being shared back to users is pretty small. Um, but even still, what we have found is uh, uh, the settlement that happens there is often worse than going through public mempool for a whole bunch of reasons we just wrote a blog post on. But we have a blog post that basically says, you know, private transactions often do worse than public mempool transactions because of slippage. Okay. Um, and there's a whole bunch of reasons why. Um, to, oh, the other thing about these private RPC endpoints is they have pretty weak observability characteristics. So you sort of throw them in there and then it's like a, a black hole. You don't really know what happens. And sometimes strange things happen that are sort of hard to understand. We at Block Native have actually built a new solution called Transaction Boost, which is a, a an also an RPC endpoint, but it aggregates all of these private endpoints. So you give us the transaction via Transaction Boost and then we then farm it out. So you get mm -hmm. access to all the block space. And we provide um, uh, sort of high levels of observability so you can know what's going on with your transactions. If you're listening to this and you care about this stuff, um, you can go to our website mm -hmm. and find out. You can try it out. It's pretty cool. We have some cool tools for it. But the whole idea is private transactions, that's some of the compromises or maybe even most of the compromises. And, and we think there's a whole bunch of really interesting things that can result um, from here. And so that's an area of active development for us and for others. And, and just to frame it, private transactions used to be about 2% of the network. Now they're 
about 12 to 15% of the network, depending on the day. And most people in the industry feel like that number is going to go up 30%, 50%, maybe. Right. That's a big conversation at ECC, right? That, that is just a rising, yeah. Quarter over quarter. So I, so I think your argument hearing you, you would make the argument that private transactions means fragmenting mempools, which means decreased transparency and decreased transparency is bad, which easy to, easy to agree with. If I had to try to push back though, I might argue that Ultimately, when you look in traditional capital markets, payment for order flow lowers the cost of trading for retail. It enables things like zero fee, zero fees on Robinhood, which then trickle down to all the other brokerages. And dark pools, which people think of as this scary, scary thing, is like without dark pools, institutions can't trade in size, or else they would cause this pretty significant market impact and, and volatility in the markets. So I think my argument to you, if I tried to push back here, is like Payment for order flow and dark pools are both financial innovations that help the end customer, the the retail customer. Curious how you would so, respond to that. So I, I don't disagree. And, and by no means am I a, a vocal advocate for private or public. It's just like these are facts of life that we need to deal with. I think yep. your, your point, which is um, in public markets, there is evidence that users actually benefit from some of these things that feel maybe a little distasteful is exactly what we published research on that turns out that transmitting your transaction privately often results in less favorable settlement, right? Um, your, your other point, though, is a good one, which is with increased fragmentation results in um, decreased observability. And this means that there's more opportunity for um, games to be played, negative outcomes, sort of, you know, uh, hacks, exploits, things like that, because no one can really see what's going on. And I think we, as Block Native, as a as a technology provider, as an infrastructure operator, um, think very deeply about this, and and we're working hard to provide the ecosystem solutions that are sort of best of both worlds that that do provide privacy and protection and do provide observability without compromise. Mm-hmm. Um, we're actually building tools right now that that will sort of our, our next generation tools to help people really understand what's happening in the mempool right now. And then how do various transactions get on chain? What was happening around them? So um, we have a huge amount of data. We have a mempool data archive of over, I don't know, 12, 20 terabytes, something like that, that um, we're in the process of open sourcing for commercial, re- for sorry, for research purposes. Um, there's a form on our website where researchers who want to look back at, you know, transactions from July of 2020 versus July of 2023, and you can see exactly what was going on in the public mempool, what sort of action was happening there, what the bot wars looked like, and and how that affected what went on chain. And so, you know, we're, we're very much putting our money where our mouth is with, you know, this is a, a critical issue for the future of the network, of, of all Web3 networks, to be honest. And um, it requires sort of dedicated teams that are, are really focused on solving some of these problems. And, and the reason why is there's such economic incentive against it to have poor observability, to play games, to keep users ill-informed, to have, you know, I always talk about the wallets as the sleeping giants, right? That ultimately, once the wallets become MEV aware, I think the game changes entirely. And so we work with many of the leading wallets. We know many of the teams out there. And, and it's quite clear to us that they're aware of these issues. They're aware that their users are, are, are um, suffering less favorable settlement and that they want to do something about it. The question is exactly what they want to do and with whom. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I think over the course of the next year, we'll see the rise of 
um, MEV aware and MEV protecting wallets that that basically take all this complexity away on behalf of end users so that you know regular people don't need to be geniuses about this stuff because it's complicated. Uniswap just launched something on Friday. Introducing Uniswap Wallet, Swap Protection, uh, prote uh, Protection Against Front Running and Sandwich Attacks, um, Safer Swaps Every Day. Um, and they posted this thing like, what is Uniswap Swap Protection? So you're starting to see it come into these wallets. I don't know if you worked with Uniswap on that. but um, we're, we're aware of that work. I, I know some of the inner workings of it. Yeah. Um, I think it'll be very curious to see what the reality is. I know what the promise yeah, is, yeah. right? Um, but there is actually a pretty interesting, you know, I think the results are sometimes counterintuitive. And, and by the way, if you read the blog post that we showed about, you know, private transactions doing worse, it's the very effect that you talked about, which is really what happens. And this is important for everybody to know that the best settlement is at the top of the block. Okay. Because that's where you're basically acting on the most recent price information. And the further down the block you go, the more transactions can affect price and therefore the worse you do. Okay. Private transactions, which basically are standalone transactions, have nowhere near the gas to compete for top of block because the top of block is all traders, right? And so by submitting a private transaction, you're basically signing up for mid to bottom of block settlement, which basically makes you at hmm. risk of slippage, right? And so basically what starts to happen is you go, well, how do I get to the top of block? Well, if I'm in the public mempool and a searcher picks me up and includes me in a bundle, hey, suddenly I'm competing for top of block. So maybe I got background, maybe there's other things that happen, but maybe I'm part of a more complex thing, but I'm, I'm actually in a better spot so I get better settlement, right? And so it's not so cut and dried. And, and this is stuff, by the way, that we think very deeply about and that we are really interested in helping users compete for top of block settlement, right? Um, and, and it's one of the, the, we would say the problems with, or maybe the, the areas for optimization for PBS is today you have full block auctions, i.e. a builder wins the whole block or none of it, right? So you have one winner and lots of losers. And um, in the future, there's a lot of uh, research going into basically partial block auctions where you could do partial block building. So you could have a competition mm. at different levels. You could have multiple actors who put this together and net-net you know, provide more favorable settlement, right? Because at the end of the day, what users really care about is, am I being treated fairly? Am, am I being treated like other actors on the network? Or am I getting, you know, am I paying a penalty because I'm a little guy and not a big guy? And um, that's what this is all about. So huh. So you've, uh, let, let's talk about account abstraction for a second in 4337. So you, you've uh, you've long been an advocate for, for AA, um, for sure. account abstraction, I would say. And if you We've been talking about kind of the middle of the supply chain here. Let's let's take it to the top of the supply chain and and kind of the growing influence of I don't know what you want to call it more powerful wallets, more value capture wallets, uh, less blind wallets, whatever whatever are deeming these wallets. I think um, everything that we've been talking about is kind of this growing monopolizing behavior in different parts of the MEV supply chain and, and just block building supply chain. Uh, a, a, a better wallets might be a counter push on all of that. And I would just be curious to hear your thesis and thoughts on why you're so excited about account abstraction. So in general, we think that while if you think about the supply chain, it starts at the top with a user conducting a transaction flows downhill to a validator. Today, the value flows downhill with it. Uh, we think as we get uh, more um, supply chain aware wallets that the value can be captured at different spots, including at the user level. Okay. 
Now, account abstraction is, you know, probably the biggest upgrade to the user experience on Ethereum as, as anything in the history of the network. And um, it's actually kind of uh, took a while for everyone to wrap their minds around it. I, I was super confused by it. I was reading the papers and I couldn't figure out what the hell was going on because one of the beauties of account abstraction is it doesn't require a hard fork of the network. So you don't need to, at a certain date, all the nodes get upgraded and then there's new rules of consensus. Like you can introduce this major change, but you don't need to change the infrastructure. And I couldn't understand it. Um, I asked a whole bunch of people smarter than me and, and they didn't really understand it either. So we wound up publishing uh, the mental model for 4337 for account abstraction, which is what's widely used today. What it basically says is... Um, Account abstraction introduces a, a new layer on top of everything else. So today you use your, your favorite wallet, MetaMask, Ledger, I'm Token, Math Wallet, pick your favorite. You sign a transaction. That's an EOA, right? With a signed transaction going to the public mempool. What smart contract wallets do, 4337 wallets, is they add this whole layer on top of that, where rather than a user signing transactions, a user basically expresses intent, right? So I intend, what I want to have happen is I want to swap this token for that to token, right? And these intents are programmable. And this is the thing that I think people really, uh, uh, it's, it's hard to overlook, or it's easy to overlook, which is transactions on Ethereum today are these very fixed things, these very fixed rules that have certain characteristics of properties for it. And users um, feel that pinch every single time they have to authorize a token swap before they can conduct the token swap and they pay the gas on these two transactions right and the you know regular users like i don't understand it why can't i just do it like oh well you got to basically authorize the protocol to have access to this and so the application and so you know you got you're like well now it's twice as expensive like yeah but you only have to do that once right it's just messy right with uh, account abstraction and user intents you can batch these things together into one you can authorize the swap and conduct the swap with two different intents, but they actually get on chain in one transaction. Um, you can abstract away gas prices. So today to transact on Ethereum, you must hold ETH in your wallet because gas is only denominated in ETH, right? Because you're expressing intent, you could have your gas price paid in USDC or, or any ERC-20 or, or even off-chain assets like a credit card or even like credit card points or miles, right? That it kind of uh, opens things up quite a bit underneath the covers for new types of transaction experiences to happen. But to do so, there's this new class of actor called the bundler. And what does a bundler do? Bundler takes these user intents, rolls them together into a giant signed transaction. And so sounds sort of familiar to something we already talked about, which is a builder. So you basically introduce a new class of builders called bundlers. And what bundlers do is they take 4337 intents and they wrap them up supply the gas and sign the transaction to submit to the network. So most folks expect the big builders to also be, be big bundlers. These user intents need to go to a new mempool. So we talked about the public mempool before. 4337 introduces this notion of what's called an alt mempool, but that's a misnomer. It's alt mempools. There can be an arbitrary number of them. So you're going to have potentially significant fragmentation at the mempool layer. And if once you have mempools that are observable, you have new sources of MEV. So 
Um, we're excited because it really opens up the user experience. Mm -hmm. We're excited because it allows wallets to do much more powerful things on behalf of end users, but it also creates all sorts of new possibilities and new threats potentially at the, the core of the network. Um, and, and, you know, I think it's driving a renaissance in wallet innovation and that's really, to, it's really necessary because we think that there's certainly a lot of room for wallet innovation uh, moving forward. Also just a much better UX, right? Like the original way of like EOAs and signing transactions is just far too complicated. So yeah, totally. So so you can provide you know Web two like transaction experiences, but have it go on Web three. Uh, I gave a talk at ETHCC um, that that introduces the example of you have an artist named Sailor Twift, right? She has a big show coming up. She has a super fan. The super fan is like really active and Sailor Twift wants to basically recognize the super fan with some sort of exclusive experiences. And of course, Sailor could just give the super fan an NFT, but then that requires a super fan, like be crypto aware, have a wallet, know what it is, you know, yada, yada, yada. But imagine Sailor Twift works with Spotify and Spotify uses their credit card number and the credit card has become a 4337 account abstraction wallet. So you have a private key associated with your credit card wallet and you can literally drop an NFT into a Visa card. And then the super fan of the show shows up, presents your Visa mm. credential, maybe the card, maybe just on her phone. And they say, Hey, you have this asset associated with your credit card that gives you access to this VIP area. Please come on in. Right. And that's, you know, an NFT, which the user can then share or sell or, or leverage. Right. And, and it just sort of, Suddenly, these experiences get wide open, um, all enabled by Web3, but, but massively simpler for all members of the supply chain. It's great for Sailor Twift. It's great for Spotify. It's great for Visa. And it's great for the users. So we're really excited about this, but it's going to take some time to awesome. unfold. Future, future of wallets next year, 2024, 2025, moving from transaction-based interactions to intent-based interactions with that, basically what you're saying is wallets will involve some sort of intense plus MEV capture plus account abstraction. Um, certainly we're going to see the rise of, of uh, intent-based wallets. Um, I think, you know, the, the reality is, is most users are not going to be aware that they're moving from one to the other, or that one is intent. It'll feel very yeah, familiar, yeah. And very similar to the end user. Um, I think you'll have wallets that, look out for their users that are uh, proactively providing MEV protection and potentially MEV recirculation. And the reason why is users will have start to have options and they'll say, this wallet protects me, this wallet does not. I'll, I'll move over to the wallet that protects me, right? So the one that does not will need to introduce those capabilities. This is an area that we are, you know invest a lot in. We provide infrastructure for wallets to do this sort of stuff. So we think there's a lot of, of good things happening there. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of conversation about, you know, where's the next billion users come from? And it's either going to be bottom-up organic growth. There's going to be viral applications that basically bring a whole bunch of new people into the ecosystem, or and or it's going to be top-down inorganic growth where we're going to meet users where they already are, like existing credit card holders, right, or existing brokerage account holders. Or suddenly, these things that you already have and know and use and are familiar with will get superpowers because account abstraction allows them to become conversant and flex and usable and secure in this web three environment. And as you might imagine, we're fairly bullish on, on that top down inorganic growth. If you look at the numbers of debit card holders, of credit card holders, of bank account holders in the world, there's, there's a lot of them and it'll take us a long time to go uh, organic bottom up to get there. But if we can meet users where they are and provide them new classes of experiences that they can't get today and, 
provide the um, infra- the existing providers with like new services to sell, new ways to retain their existing customers, new reasons for their customers to transact. Um, we think it's you know massively expansive for the category and for the economy at whole. So that's why we're mm-hmm. bullish about four three three seven. That's why we talk about it. Um, you know, again, it's rolling out now. There's a lot happening already, but it's it's gonna be it's gonna be some time before it's sort of a mainstream activity, and then suddenly it's mainstream. So yeah. we're we're really excited about that. Matt, as we think about bringing this to a close, I think we could uh, tie this conversation together nicely by using Uniswap as an example to answer some of the final questions that I'm thinking about. So what what percentage of the MEV does Uniswap account for today? I would assume it's quite high. It, it's a good question. Um, it depends on which version of, of Uniswap v2, v3, or now v4, but but it's well over 50% was is Uniswap and at times it's been like 75% of all MEV is associated with Uniswap mm-hmm. transactions. Um, by the way, that could be a good thing or a bad thing as it relates to, to Uniswap and yeah. uh, the state of the network, but it does say sort of how significant a player they are as an application. Yeah. I mean, so Uniswap is this, whatever it is, 50, 67, whatever the percentage is, Uniswap is this big source of MEV. My, I think my first question for you is, this, this might be a really dumb question. Could Uniswap become a relay or a builder? And the Absolutely. second order que- question that I have there is like, could one app end up completely monopolizing the supply chain of Ethereum? Well, so this is one of the big concerns. Um, so at uh, DevConnect in Amsterdam more than a year ago now, uh, a Flashbots put on an event called MevDay was organized into MEV Utopia and Dystopia, right? And the mm-hmm. Utopia was articulated as a, um, a disaggregated, decentralized supply chain with, you know, separate independent actors at each stage, at each, you know, uh, mem- at each level of the supply chain. Whereas Dystopia was a vertically in its integrated supply chain where one actor controlled everything, the, the wallet, the application, the the searcher, the re, the builder, the relay, and the validator. And I think at that time there was a sort of general sense that economics were going to favor verticalization, vertical integration here, and that that there was needed to be work to be done to counteract that. We're a year in, and we're seeing quite clearly, you know, unequivocal evidence of verticalization. Searcher builders are integrated today. Okay. We have not seen integration at other levels of the stack. So, for instance, none of the major staking pools operate their own relay today, right? Um, it's unclear if any of them want to. The ones, the big ones who I talked to expressed no interest in doing so, but they may eventually have economic incentives to do so, right? Um, and so could an actor like Uniswap, which now has a wallet, right, which is the leading uh, uh, DEX uh, protocol, uh, could they either themselves do searching or partner up with searchers or do some sort of OFA-like thing that would sort of capture their flow. seems like they're already doing that, right, from what I understand. Could they also operate a builder or partner with someone? Absolutely. Could they also? Yes, yes, absolutely. I think that, you know, there are both practical issues, which is Uniswap could build their own operating system if they wanted to, but it's probably too much. So they have to pick and choose what they want to do. And there's also a lot of social pressure. Is there certain steps that folks would take that would basically create a significant enough backlash by the ecosystem that would sort of disincentivize someone to do so. So um, it is possible. Is it probable? I, I really don't know. Um, it is pretty clear, though, that 
Uniswap is a very sophisticated actor who's well aware of these issues and and certainly does not want to be this poster child of, you know, oh, they just turn a blind eye and all their users get abused. So don't use Uniswap. You should use something else instead, which is MEB aware. Right? They're, they're not going to be asleep at that switch. That's for sure. If you were Hayden and you were the and, or MC or you know the Uniswap team, you've got the wall, you've got the wallet, you've got this app chain thesis, and I, I remember when Dan Elitzer put out this post about kind of you know uni chain the potential of uni chain to capture more of this value that they leak. Um, you've got Uniswap X. What is your if you were the CEO of, of, of Uniswap today? What would you do that maybe they're not doing? Oh. Um, I don't proclaim to know everything that they're doing. I think they're they're quite sophisticated and um, are sort of leading the way in terms of being um, thoughtful about these issues. Um, I think the question is, you know, from the POV of the network, you want Uniswap to be one of many, right? From the point of view of Uniswap, you want to win market share, you want to win users, you want to use win liquidity, you want to win the the, the rev market, and so. Um, you know, my view is uh, where they should focus is in ensuring a diversity of infrastructure suppliers underneath the covers. They need to own the user experience. They need to own the brand experience. They need to make sure their users are protected. And the best way to do so, both in terms of execution and in terms of sort of for the safety and, and, and longevity of the network is use a bunch of folks under the covers, right? Um, uh, don't pick single partners. Don't cut backroom deals. Don't be opaque. All of these things come out in the public eventually. And, and quite frankly, I'm concerned about some of the backroom deals that I'm aware of eventually becoming made public. And the folks who are involved in those maybe not being really happy about that, you know, that all of this stuff becomes public, you know, sooner or later. And, uh, if you're a, an actor who proclaims to care about the values of decentralization, but you're doing things which are pretty counter to that, that's not great, right? Um, yep. There are practical and pragmatic reasons sometimes why that's necessary, but in general, you know, uh, we all want to be on the right side of history here and, and basically be favoring the forces of decentralization. Um, you know, in the space, there are plenty of people who say the right words, but their actions don't match up to it. So I would encourage. Um, Hayden, the Uniswap team, and everyone to be skeptical, not just of what public statements are made, but how these various organizations behave and act and sort of where they're going. Um, and that's true of Block Native, and it's true of everybody else, right? Uh, at the end of the day, we are a privately held venture-backed startup with shareholders. We're expected to issue a return. We're by no means alone in that. Many of our peers are the same, right? We're just more explicit about our, our need to, to find revenue generating opportunities and how we plan to do so. Um, but anyone who has private shareholders who's saying, oh, we're not really concerned about generating revenue, that's something to be, you know, there's an economic incentive at play here that's not explicit. So, you know, it's an interesting field to be in and an interesting ecosystem to be a part of. And, and I think it's still pretty early, but um, there's a bunch of, there's, there's a lot of history yet to be written is probably the best way to put it. I guess you don't want to name the name, but I, I think, uh, I think it's pretty obvious, uh, who you're, who you're mentioning here, Matt, anything, uh, this is an awesome conversation. Um, anything that we haven't talked about that you feel like is, uh, still maybe mis misunderstood in the industry or just anything that you think is important to get across before we wrap this up? Um, well, I, I really appreciate you know going into some of these topics as well as we have. I appreciate to all the listeners for sticking around with us as, as far as this is something <laughs> we're passionate about. Um, I think the thing is, is uh, today's Ethereum. So I view Ethereum as just 
a few chapters ahead in the book because it's one of the longer living smart contract chains and it has most of the liquidity today. And, and we're seeing this tendency of the network kind of being bent towards the will of the trader class, right? In many ways, this is inevitable. Traders are going to trade, you know, ARB is going to ARB, right? There's sort of no way to avoid that. But the question is, do users become second-class citizens? Do users basically get reverted to the slow lane or do they get reverted to sort of the less favorable settlement lanes because the traders are crowding in? Um, that's something I worry about. And that's something I think that we as a, as a community need to be thoughtful about is, are we privileging individual end users in such a way that they're, you know, equitable contributors? Um, we think that knowledge is power. This is why we publish as much research as we publish and we're, our blog is very active. And, and we think that users left to their own de devices are going to get run over and that's not great. And so uh, we very much are trying to build and, and provide powerful tools that uh, protect users from some of these Ill, inevitable ill effects and even empower them to compete mm -hmm. in ways that perhaps they, they haven't been able to. And so, you know, We've been at this game. Blockchain has been building for five plus years, and and uh, we've always been on the side of the end user, from the best gas estimators in the world to uh, greatest ways to connect your wallets to major applications, and and now we're doing things like you know uh, private transaction aggregation with transaction boost. So um, it's just something I I, I want to make sure is at the forefront of the dialogue with the thought leadership, um, because it's really easy to get blinded by the trader class, the trader volume, the liquidity that comes with it, you know, um, and, and lose sight of what it is we're really building here, which is we're trying to build the foundation for the next economy and an economy which is fundamentally better than the one that we have today, which I think everyone would acknowledge is not as equitable as we'd like it to be. Um, and so this is a debate which continues to unfold. The, the, the technology continues to move forward. The state of the art continues. And, and of course, we as actors and it will continue to evolve as I think we've already sort of hinted at a bit today. Um, but uh, uh, we're excited to be a part of the conversation and, and uh, appreciate the opportunity to share some of our perspectives. Awesome. Uh, if you guys want to find out more about Matt, he, uh, he's on Twitter at Matt at M Cutler blocknative.com. They put out a lot of good research. You guys just put out or are putting out soon a bunch of great data. So um, yeah, appreciate everything you do, Matt. Thanks for the time. You bet. Appreciate it. Cheers, everybody. Cheers.